Welcome to Sound Medicine, mantras and music podcast, where you will hear from various healers, musicians, visionaries, and educators. Get ready to experience transformational and inspiring storytelling, songs, chants, and interviews that will uplift your spirits, mood, and health. Welcome back to Sound Medicine, Mantras, and Music. I am your host, Gio, and today we have an incredible guest, John Bulow, who is a naturopathic doctor, as well as a psychologist, board-certified polarity therapist, composer, pianist, and sound therapist. His career spans over 40 years in the creative arts, the healing arts, and the martial arts. He's a world leader in the use of integrative energy medicine for healing. Dr. Bulow is the author of four books, including Human Tuning, Music and Sound in the Healing Arts. He's an instructor of sound science and sound therapy at the California Institute of Integral Studies. I took a three-day course with John last year and was blown away with his wisdom on the subject of sound medicine and also his refreshing approach. He's a master of making the complex easier to understand, practical, and fun. I'm so excited for what is in store for you in this episode. I hope you enjoy. Okay, John. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey with sound from a bird's eye view and what brought you here now to be an expert in in sound medicine and healing? Well, I think my journey began when I was probably two two or three years old because I started playing the piano. And my immersion in the piano and the, the sounds of the piano were, were outright mystical as far as I'm concerned. And I would just play and play and play. And my, my aunt, who was a graduate of Chicago Music Conservatory at the time, said I shouldn't have lessons until I was nine or ten. So I should just immerse myself in improvising, making sound, and not playing to play normal music. So I would just, I, I became, I had a relationship with sound that began there. Uh, supported by just the right people showed up in my family. I got a normal musical education. I, I have a I have a degree in piano performance now also, but I did that along with my my doctoral work in psychology. So people don't quite understand that, but in those days, that's what you could do. <laughs> you could actually study psychology, have an inside minor in, in music and create whatever, and it was allowed. So I graduated from Indiana University with a degree in psychology, a doctorate in psychology, and a master's in piano performance. And so I've always combined the healing arts and music in my work. Fascinating. How, how has your work changed over, over time as you've worked with sound from, let's say, in your earlier years to now how you work with sound? In my earlier years, I actually made a pretty good living playing 60s music. <laughs> it got me through college. It did all kinds of good stuff. I, at the same time, what really changed my whole approach to sound was my listening to John Cage, who's a John Cage is an avant garde composer. And I fell in love with what he calls his music of changes. And I immediately realized that's really what my musical calling was, this in terms of music. And then simultaneously, I began in the healing arts, looking into music therapy and things like that. And that eventually led to my understanding through Cage that sound preceded all. Every sound has the potential to be music. It's how you listen, not how it's defined as music or not music. 
Tell me a little bit more about that and how that influenced you. Well, I think it's that I always had a this sense of of, uh, of wonder with sound. And early on, that's when I was little, I wasn't bound by the notes on the piano. I wasn't bound by music theory. I wasn't bound by anything like that. And I would just listen to the wind and try to imitate it on the piano. Or I'd listen, I'd look at something and try to play it. I always had this sense of sound permeating everything. And when I got to John Cage, music music to me was more like you you learn this rigid thing of there's seven notes and there's eight notes and they they can combine in so many different ways. And during my studies, I studied like Schoenberg who did permutations of different, he did all the permutations possible as far as I'm concerned. But I thought, what's left? And then I came across composers like Harry Parched and John Cage, Henry Cowell. Uh, and all of this attracted me because they were just saying that everything has the potential to be music. It's just mm-hmm. a matter of how you listen. And then I realized it's so true because some, I mean, some people would say that rock and roll is the devil's music or blues is the devil's music, but uh, Chopin's God's music or something like that. You know, or Raga's. When I went to India, I thought they'll be better. And they said they hated the piano. They thought it was the devil's instrument. You know, I mean, and, and I'm thinking why all sound is beautiful. It's just a matter of how you relate to it. It's all vibration, and if you if you mindfully listen, it can take you places. So I began to basically just listen to everything as with the possibility of it becoming music and taking me places. Like I like to tell people, I like at the airport because I used to. Now I don't fly a lot, but before COVID, I used to fly a lot. And you, I sit there and meditate. I'd love to listen to the sound of people talking around me and in the airport and stuff. It was like a mantra surrounding me. And every now and then, the trucks would come by with people going beep, 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 beep. You go like this, and I, I, I and, and my, I would jump, and my mind. Then I catch myself, and I go, "Wait a minute, I'm safe," because it's really meant to activate your amygdala. So I wake up to make sure the truck wasn't going to run over me, even though it was a hundred feet away. You know, but, but still, the sound carries. It's a warning sound. And then I said, "Wait a minute, let me just meditate on this sound and include it." And instead of fighting, getting into arguments about this terrible, the airport, the sounds, I would meditate on the beep, beep, beep sound that I could feel it vibrating my pineal gland. I could feel it opening up spaces in my brain. I could, I could, you know, use brain, I could use my, all my knowledge of anatomy and, and neuropsychology to figure out what was happening <laughs> simultaneously to meditating on it. So I, I would find that that sound was absolutely enlightening for me versus the person next to me who was just sitting there tightening their body and basically, you know, stressing out over the sound. That's fascinating. So we're talking about a sound that for most people could be irritating or chaotic or creating this fight or flight response. Yet what you seem to be saying is that depending on how you listen to the sound, you can experience it completely differently. Exactly. You have control. That's what I like to tell my patients. Also, you have control. It's your relation. I define consciousness as your relationship with. The word consciousness actually means your relationship. So how you you have control of how you choose to relate to the sound. And you can make it bad. You can tell a story about it. You can whatever you want. I mean, and you say, oh, we got re-. my favorite is the scientists. I've got research showing, but it's always on a bell curve. And I say, well, what about the people on the other side of the bell curve? <laughs> they don't seem to be affected by it. What's the difference? So you can quantify it and do whatever you want, but your relationship with it is something you can control. 
How do you take somebody from one side of the bell curve of, let's say, a trauma or an irritant and shift? What is that? What's that like? Take me, walk me through that. Well, that's a great question. That's that's what I spent my life doing, <laughs> figuring that mm-hmm. out. Uh, that's a clinical question, really, when you think about it. And because I work a lot with people with extreme trauma, and basically, I would start. I start with the simplest sound they could deal with. They could be just a simple. Mm, something like that that has no meaning it's just a sound they could hum it i use tuning forks to do it but the simpler the better as long as it's not activating their amygdala uh, they're not having the fear response that's where i start and I, I i compare it to doing hatha yoga if somebody could stretch and touch their knees you don't want to shove them down to their feet it's like uh yeah, you know, sure. It, and your ears, actually, when you look at the anatomy of your ears, they have it's just like joints in the ear with the hammer, the anvil, the stirrup, and so on. And if you some of those sounds, if you push too hard, too quick, it strains people. So you have to. So it's hard for someone to believe. But I look at someone doing yoga and doing all those back bends. I go, how can they do it? It's like if somebody says to me, "Well, John, how could you listen to that deep, deep, deep this music?" It's the same thing. I've just trained myself over the years to stretch my ears. And in India, they don't call, they call that nada yoga. It means the yoga of sound. So it's the same thing. It's the same principle. If somebody's really, really sick, I wouldn't go in there and play car horns for them. I mean, just wouldn't do it. I would play something really, really simple, melodic, something easy for them to get into and relate with. And then I would build from there, depending on the person, and challenge them a little bit, a little bit, just like stretching a little more, a little more, and so on. What are the indicators when you're working with somebody that it's going in a direction of harmony versus disharmony? Well, my indicators are always, I, I observe the physical body. If I see a tightening in the face, I see a tightening in the tissues. If I have my hands on, if I feel a tightening in the tissues, whenever someone tightens, that's usually an indicator. They may not even recognize it, but, if the, but it's usually an indicator that it's too much. Yeah, I, I also compare that to, to young trainers who push people too hard. They don't really see when, you know, they, and they push them past the point because they, they're not observing how far that person could go. They don't understand it because they can go further. So as a clinical practitioner, I like to watch my patients very closely. I want to be with them. I don't want to have what I can do be mapped onto them. It's just the goal. I want to find out where they're at and what they're doing. So it comes down to listening to your patient and observing visually, palpationally, and just intuitively to feel it as well. So what is the goal of when you work with individuals? In other words, if I can rephrase that, what does it mean? This, this podcast is called Sound, Sound Medicine. When we say some, to heal, wh- how do you define healing in, from your lens? Well, I actually, this is what I write a lot. Of. I, I'm actually writing articles for books for therapists and doctors and stuff. And uh, these are the questions that are being asked. And I would say of sound mind and sound body, you know, it's, uh, well, and I'd also, I also, I, I, I generally refer to this idea that, of, of quantum in the sense that the word quantum means to, to quantify vibration. So, uh, and what I do in my work is I quantify vibration with tuning forks, for example. And of course, there's this thought that the quantum is separate from reality that we know. And that's, that's absurd. There's, that, that was something when the original quantum physicists discovered the vibrational world, they had no concept of vibration, really, but the experience of it. They were intellectuals. They were quantifying numbers and probabilities. And Niels Bohr said, you have to be shocked by this. It has no relationship to the regular world. And how could you say that when you say the whole world is vibration, you see? 
But you just think about vibration is what's inside, what's outside, what's above, what's below. It's a, it's a universal vibrational field. But Western medicine comes from a very, very limited form of thinking about that. And music and sound weren't included, whereas in Eastern medicine, they were. Uh, and I'm doing my best to change that. And I think if you see, uh, it's very interesting that uh, Hameroff and Primrose, who are, who are two leaders in the field of consciousness and the concept of uh, quantum fluctuation and microtubules in the brain, the vibration of that, how it steps down into reality, for example, they stop talking about the brain as computer. They talk about the brain as an orchestra sounding on multi-level octaves and scales and things like that. In other words, they all have gone to a vibrational model, and they all will start expressing it, not necessarily both quantitatively and qualitatively. In other words, they're not afraid to experience that of what they're talking about quantitatively. So that's my, my approach is, is ultimately how you can use sound therapeutically, but not the sound that you hear with your ears, but vibration. Right? So, for example, if somebody has a trauma, one of the things we do in body psychotherapy, for example, is you have that person, you say, what, are you, what, what, what sensations are you feeling in your body right now? And you keep them out of the story. You keep them out of their emotions. You keep they say, what is the vibration of that? It's really what you're asking. What is the vibration of that? And that vibration has no meaning whatsoever. It's this vibration. And then when you, but they can just get it without stories, without meanings, without quantifying it. It's vibrating their body. They're shaking with it in a way. So it's a, in psychology, we call it a feeling tone, actually. And when that feeling tone can stream through the body neutrally, they can go back to their story. The story doesn't change. But, but now they're able to be with it in a different way because they're not stopping the vibration of the story moving through their body. That's the basis of the of how nonverbal therapies work so well. Well, that yes, and and um, when in my younger years, I would do uh, a lot of vipassana meditation, and Shinzen Young was one of the pioneers with with working with pain and trying to feel your edges and and really being fully mindful of of that call it the energy and vibration of, of what we label as pain in the body. What in your mind, what, what keeps something stored there? Because it's not a conscious choice to keep pain in the body or trauma in the body. How do we relate to that in a way that can move towards this state of ease and that you're talking about? Well, we just have to, well, first of all, it's the hippocampus in the brain that's filled with all the stories of sure. And we relate to those stories as, as it's a relationship with those stories or consciousness of those stories. You know, it's uh, you can't once something's happened, it's happened. You can mm. you, you can tell yourself all all you want to tell yourself about it for what for, you know, but ultimately every story has beneath it a vibration. It leads to a vibratory experience, frequency. You know, so therefore you're telling yourself this to get to a frequency. You can fantasize anything you want. The moment you fantasize something, you also it, you think it's not real, but it is real because what's real is the frequency of that which is streaming through your body, and you just activate it through the fantasy, right? So you everything's vibration. So no matter what you think, no matter what you do, you're creating vibration. So if we, depending on the story that you are telling yourself and how what's happening to you, whether you're something's happening for you or something's happening to you. you there's no good and bad, by the way. Yeah, I, yes, I agree. I agree. <laughs> it's just going to come down to a frequency. 
<laughs> well, is that frequency secondary to the story that we tell ourselves? Like, in other words, primary. The story seeking the frequency. The story seeking the frequency. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know, mm. you, there's something you're getting from that vibration. There's a pattern within it. There's, in other words, there's a wave. It's a wave and a particle simultaneously. It's a an addiction. It's a ritual. But the story creates the ritual pattern. And so, da, da, da. I don't. I never thought people were addicted to drugs or addicted to vibration. Certain fields of vibration they want to stay in, and they don't know how to get out of it. Well, what what can we do as human beings to stay in tune, as it were? Well, for me, the, I, I call that staying in tune. I I call it neurocoherence, right? So mm-hmm. let it be coherent. But also, I think that staying in tune is impossible. <laughs> so you're always going to be going in and out of tune, phasing, basically. So what's more important for me is to build neurocoherence in your system. And there's many ways of doing that. I use like CNG tuning forks. You could use yoga. You could use OM. You could use Tai Chi. In other words, meditative practices, all these mindful practices are ways of integrating neurocoherence so that you it's integrated into your nervous system so that you know when you're not coherent right it's not Mm -hmm. you know and then your relationship with not being coherent is what's when you you're not afraid of that because you know how to get back to coherence yeah so you have to have it's like you know how to get home you can go out and do all kinds of stuff and not be afraid of getting lost right and so neurocoherence is basically what we want to get back. I, I think in athletics, I think of the, I play a lot of golf. So I, and I play at a very high level. You know, I, and I, I see the, the people at different levels, they'll hit a bad shot and they're, they have, they lose coherence all day. You know, it's like they're beating them right. up, you know, all day long. Whereas if I hit a bad shot, I take a deep breath and I go back to coherence and I'm fine. You know, and that's what it, uh, it's the same in music. If you're playing a piece of music, if you make a mistake, you lose uh, an amateur will lose their coherence. If I make a mistake, there is no mistake. Right, right, right. So quickly, I catch it so fast, I just stay coherent and I just keep going. And so the idea would be that you want to, but the other great example is of an airplane. I always tell people, if you want an airplane going to Europe, how often is that airplane on course? And most people say it's only on course like about 0.001% of the time and it lands because it's constantly phasing off course back in, you know, and correcting but we as people, when we get off course, we say, oh, I'm a bad person. What's wrong with me? I'm screwed up. Everybody don't like me. <laughs> and so we keep getting further and further off course. And if we get so far off course, it becomes a crisis. And a crisis could lead to trauma and so on. Mm-hmm. If, if the plane gets off course, it crashes if it goes too far. It's the same with people. People say, I crashed. For sure. And especially right now in, in the era that we're in uh, with social distancing and a lot of fear-based news. And we have this COVID we're dealing with on a collective level. Uh, you see so many people responding in various ways. And it'd be very interesting from your perspective to, to see how to work with these energies of discoherence. Well, the point is that these people were dealing at a political time. And, and for me, I know that, I mean, I'm a child of the, the Vietnam era and all that. So, and I know this polarization. I've been in it before. And mm. in this particular time, you know, nobody talks about coherence. Nobody talks about what you can do for yourself other than take a drug. Uh, you know, but, and that's it. There's not, I've not seen hardly anything on TV about how you can increase your immunity, how you could be better, how you could be better off, how you could use this as an opportunity to be a better person mentally and physically. But that's the point. That's what I call the politics of healing. 
Well, let's talk about it. What what can we do? Now, if you had, if you were on TV to millions of people right now, and you had a, a slot to give your thoughts and all of your experience and research, and instead of reaching for a drug or a vaccine, well, and something to boost your immune system, what would you? What what is? What are your recommendations? Well, my recommendation: I actually sent out a whole protocol for mm. this with town, uh, which I'll send you. I don't know if, I, if you have it, but I'll be happy to send it to you. Can no. it's it's so I put it I put it everywhere, you know. And okay, uh, I use it with tuning forks. And if people don't have tuning forks, I recorded something you can listen to for free. My interest is in people getting better. That's it. Period. Absolutely. Um, you know, and so that was my approach to sound. But as, um, uh, we did talk about this earlier, but also a naturopathic physician. That came second because uh, I always consider myself more a psychologist first. Um, mm. Somehow I, I, I licensed as a naturopathic physician. And so therefore, naturopathic medicine is really what's called for. Um, yes. It's really great sound with and, and good thinking, right thinking. That would be psychology, right relationship. And you integrate it with how you're eating, eating on a regular schedule, having a rhythm to your life, learning how to take uh, like cold showers and hot and so on. All of these things and learning how to meditate and use sound, all of these practices are pretty well known. And how sure. the science is off the charts now about how good they are for you. And yet you never hear about it. No, I just hear about the drugs. You just hear about the drugs, you know, or taking hydroxychloroquine or shooting light up or whatever. You know, there's always a new drug. Everybody wants, they don't want to change their life. They just want a new drug. Right. And it is, it, you know, sometimes this drives me nuts. Sometimes I actually had patients come in watching drug commercials on TV and they were taking these drugs that they didn't need. They got it from their doctor. So what are you taking them for? They said, because all the people were happy that we're taking them. <laughs> they wouldn't be happy. <laughs> and, you know, and then we, we see also people taking tons of opiates. I mean, for emotional yes. reasons. I mean, how crazy can you get? How many people do you kill? I mean, that's killed more people than COVID. Yeah. So. Again, that's but that's the politics that we're in, and that's quite honestly that that politics is both Republican and Democratic. It's it's bi, that's bipartisan. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, which is why it's so important to have these types of conversations and and show that there is another way to look at this. There is another way to to hone our and harmonize our minds and our bodies, not just through taking a pill or, you know, like you said, it's a, it's a lifestyle choice. And really, from what you seem to be saying, it's these stories that we tell ourselves play a vital role in, in terms of how we, how, if we're in tune or out of tune. And if we're out of tune, if we, then it's a matter of not harping on being out of tune. It's, it's constantly reshifting. We're always getting out of tune and kind of coming back in tune. I mean, I play guitar yeah, yeah. and I have to tune it every single time. You know, it's the same with us as human beings. We've got a tune that we have to let in my, I do, I actually posted a whole thing on neurocoherence and self-regulation and on, on Facebook for everybody, a whole half hour show. Anybody could watch it. Uh, Cause I thought it was so important. You know, because we have to learn to have a practice, a daily. You just don't have, oh, I'm coherent. You have to have a daily practice to ingrain it in your nervous system. Every day, you have to practice it. And the nice thing about sound is it could be a two-minute practice, and it's very, very good. I've always said a two-minute practice a day is better than no practice a day, right? And I I guarantee you, a pill is not going to bring you coherence. (laughs) It takes more. (laughs) 
<laughs> you get you some other good stuff. <laughs> right. I'm not against pills, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, it's not going to bring you what we're talking about. <laughs> no, I agree that that regular practice is so so key to integrate and something to bring us back to a um, a still point or to a grounding point on a regular basis. And um, I, I was hoping you'd speak a little bit. You've mentioned a lot of different tools here, but uh, tuning forks is something you're you're really well known for. Can you talk a little bit about about tuning forks and the process of how how to tune ourselves through tuning forks? You know, I, I will. That's actually uh, again my main. Thing that I push in a way or, or talk about, I did research on. Only I, I like it because it's such a quick practice. Mm-hmm. And when I was working with in my private practice, and, and uh, I realized that people needed to practice. That I always thought sessions weren't magic. You know, if they weren't working on themselves, then I was just a pill for them in a way. Uh, right. You know, so I would actually in the beginning I'd give my patients tuning forks because I but I note I say you have to do it once in the morning, once at night. All I want is a minute, a minute and a half. You tap two tuning forks together and you listen with a good thought. And that's your practice. Can you do it? And I realize that if people say, I'm gonna meditate for a half hour a day, they they do it for a week and then stop and feel and get depressed and judge themselves for not doing it next week. So I kept mm. I wanted something that was simple and sound is unbelievably effective. I did the biochemistry and what happens in a minute. Uh, it will change you. It, it's like instant change in your body. So I basically got into the tuning forks. So I see if I can tap a couple. Let's see. I think it'll come through my mic okay. Uh, I use this tuning fork. You can hear this okay? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I use this tuning fork, and when you put them together, that once in the morning, once at night, once when you wake up, once when you go to sleep, that's the practice. And it's simple. And I even tell, I tell people it's what's more important is you do it regular because that's what it gives your body that constant ability to know where it's at. It, 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 trains, it entrains your nervous system, but also the science on it, we were talking about it, it, it just spikes nitric oxide in the neuronal, the neuronal system. It creates anandamide molecules. It, but you're really a form of, of cannabinoids in a way in your body. And Ananda means bliss, uh, but it also really brings on a state of neurocoherence that is now you own it at that point, and it's instant. So that's, and I like it because it's easy to do. It's uh, It's been around for thousands of years. It's nothing new. I've just quantified it with tuning forks. Again, I've quantified consciousness. Uh, that would be the modern word for what's happening here. You know, so... That's basically, that's the tuning forks. Now, I have other tuning forks. That's a C and G? Yes, yeah. This is a C and a G. It's a little, little different than normal piano tuning. It's tuned a little lower and so on for certain reasons. But it's the space between that does the tuning, not in this particular case. Can you can you speak to that a little bit, the space between that yeah, does the so tuning? I think you have a C tuning fork, and it's 256. 
cycles per second. A G284 is 84 cycles per second. It's like two people in a way. In fact, in India, those two people we call Shiva and Shakti, it's yin and yang. Uh, and when they relate to each other, they create a vortex. They create a special energy, but it's a vortex energy. And, and that it's that coherence that one receives of the relationship. Right? So you're looking for right relationship. When consciousness is relationship with. Right? So now all of a sudden you merge with this sound, and then you have within it a still vortex, uh, a, play, a still point, basically. And with that, when your system surrenders to that, which it will, uh, that's what's called in science the relaxation response. It's a really simple thing called the relaxation response. And you see all the, you look at the research, you can see everything that happens for you in the relaxation response when you're there. And it's quite a bit different to being upset about your story and tightening your body. It's the opposite. But, can you tell me some stories of people that you've worked with with these tuning forks just to to give life to what you're saying? Well, actually, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. Uh, I was in New York City. I, I was at 911 at the FEMA tents after the trade centers came down. And I was working with firemen and everybody with tuning forks. And, of course, doggies. I worked with doggies and stuff. And, and you know, But that was a very tense time. And afterwards, I needed to fly out to Europe from basically New York to Switzerland one week after that. I was been working with all these people and stuff. And I then I put the tuning forks in my, my bag, my flight bag, not in my suitcase. And I got stopped at the airport. There's only like 10 people flying. I was one of them. And I got stopped for my tuning forks. And so they brought me into the a customs officer, brought me in, and he had the tuning forks on his desk. And he said, what are these? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's got a 357 Magnum, you know, or four whatever gun, you know, <laughs> and, and looking at me with these eyes that are definitely not neurocoherent. <laughs> and I was definitely, I was trying to phase back to coherence and failing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to entrain coherence. Yeah, it wasn't going to happen. So fortunately, I had a brochure from my business. And I said, these are tuning forks. I'm a doctor. I use them for, for helping people. He said, what do they do? And I said, well, can I show you? And he said, yes. And I tapped the forks, put them, brought them to his ears, just like you heard now. And he just sat there. He just, he just had a relaxation response. And I felt it was so, it's hard to describe the tension level and the contrast between in that tension level, him having a relaxation response, because I had one simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I'd, I'd, the, the heavens had opened up and I was ascending and he came back. I think the whole thing was like probably two or three minutes, but it, but it felt like forever. And then he said, OK, there's no problem here. And then I left the tuning forks on the desk and I said, uh, he said could you hold on a second? He says, Bob, come in here. And he called in another customs officer for me to tune them. <laughs> and then I, I just, as a gift, they said they couldn't take gifts, but I left them on the desk and nobody said, don't keep me. <laughs> wonderful. That is a wonderful you know, story. That's my favorite story. You know. But in that story, though, is the clarity of the contrast between high level neural dissonance and high level coherence. You know, it's, it was just like two ends of it amazing you know you melt in the coherence well yes and um as a customs officer i think a lot of people can relate maybe not to that specific job but to a job that you have to be hyper focused yep. very stressful have a lot of tension in your body and then 
to take something like you said, as simple as tuning forks and within a minute to go into that relaxation response. That's really incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those experiences you just lifelong memory of that. It's, uh, it's actually propelled me forward in my work. It really gave me. Yeah. Now, I have a, a background as a physical therapist, a licensed physical therapist. So I see a, a people with a lot of tension in, this, in the spine, in the suboccipital, sciatica. Is this, would the CG be appropriate in, in that situation or something else to think about when you're working with like the musculoskeletal system well, specifically? Yeah, I have a, another tuning fork. That, uh, I use three tuning forks for sound healing. I use the CNG. I use that as a, a regular coherent practice. And if you take the uh, another one, you put weights on the end of it, and it makes a lower sound. I, I, I sound as you can hear it. Sound, it's a single sound. Right, and I could take this and put it. I could take this the stem of the twenty fork and place it directly on the body. Right, and when I do that, it's that. Everyone thinks people think it's one sound going in, but I actually have it set for overtones. So C and G is built into the one sound as a harmonics, right? So now you're getting a harmonic spectrum of sound is entering into an acupuncture point uh, directly on bones, uh, trigger points, reflex points, whatever it may be. And I use the three C and G in that if I do sessions. And I've also, you know, I, like like you, I, I think I'm trained in you know, osteopathic manipulation, chiropractic manipulation, things like that. So I've always integrated but I don't do it the way you would do it as a PT. I do it more as a, psych- a psychologist. I approach the body differently, but I use the same methods, creative mm-hmm. and so on. And so I would then take and put somebody in a counter-strain position, pop on the tuning fork. It's just amazing what happens. So again, when it comes to those kind of things, I always tell people, integrate it into what you do best. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Because And also make sure you're trained to do it. <laughs> you know? yeah, of course. Of course. yeah, there's no magic. You know, You can't just say, there's certain protocols I could give, like for COVID and stuff, but that's different that you can do as a practice to prevent. But if you really have something going on, you you go to see someone, you make sure they know what they're doing. <laughs> of course, yeah. you're talking about the odo tuners uh, with yeah. the weighted end, yeah. and what's what hurts or frequency for let's say musculoskeletal One, tension? One twenty-eight. Okay, that's it. I just use one twenty-eight. Like I said, the three tuning forks I use are. Uh, the 128 with the weights on the end, that's directly in the body. I used the C and the G we just heard. What we call vibroacoustic, that's the, the auto fork. It vibra- you feel it as vibration on the body. And yes. the other is uh, psychoacoustic. You, you tap them together. You could also do this way. And move them around your body. Or you could tap them on your knees and use them directly in your ears. So with those three tuning forks, I can put them in my pocket. I can carry them around. I can do sessions. I've done sessions on airplanes in my dentist office. I've tuned everybody in my dentist office. I've tuned. I, I actually, I have a little, I just did PRP shot in my hip. So they want to do, they want to do hip surgery. I said, no, I'll take the PRP. I saw my own x-ray and they got upset. They would do surgery. You know, I said, no, no, no. The PRP will be just fine for me. <laughs> so I did PRP and lasers. I do my tuning forks in there. I'm walking fine. I'm playing golf. You know, uh, but basically, uh, the doctor who did the PRP was during COVID, and uh, he was all upset. So I tuned him. I tuned his nurse. I tuned because they had nothing to do. I was the only person in there. I tuned everybody in the whole office. <laughs> I was yeah. in my pocket. <laughs> You're like everyone's favorite person. I know. You know, when-, <laughs> when I come back, I'm going to tune him up. You know, 
<laughs> so, <laughs> like, hey, should we be paying you for coming to visit us? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, the thing is, it's so easy to carry, and it's yeah. And I'm all for all sound healing, like with crystal. I have my studio. I have crystal. I have everything you can imagine here. Uh, but the thing is, I can't carry it around. I need something simple, you know, that I could use. And I have other tuning forks, but they're primarily for neuroplasticity. They're the big, in other words, like yoga to make you change and move in your in different directions. Different. You have, when, you're, when you ever you add a sound, you know, it's stretching, like in like in like in hatha yoga. Whenever you push a little further, you, so every sound stretches you in different directions. I call that neuroplasticity. Basically, neurocoherence is very, very simple. So with individuals with, let's say, you know, anxiety so prevalent right now, and I, I know a number of people that are would tend to be depressed, yep. I would imagine they'd respond well to sound. Or I guess, let me ask it this way. What somebody that responded to sound versus somebody that didn't with tuning fork, particularly that was really anxious, what, is, what are those factors? What would how how well do they have to listen or tune themselves and how much do they have to want it? What's the, the intention? What are the factors that play into somebody with that level of challenge uh, mentally or physically to see success? Well, that's also to me, but you got to know what you're doing. That's the integration part of it. Like if somebody comes to see me, I've got 50 years experience of working with depression and, uh, sure. uh, and there's not much. I, I, I was head therapist at Bellevue Psychiatric for five years. So um, I'm used to trauma, depression, whatever it may be. So I have, I'm not transferring a lot onto that. I can, I can really be with it with confidence. And then, right. then I've worked with so many people. I want to approach them where they're at. So, and I don't want to just say, I've got a magic formula for you. I want sure. to, you know, who, who exactly are you here? And I, once I get into their world and their reality, I can create a context for them to listen and, and use it correctly. So a lot of it is not magic. Because some people, most everybody will like being tuned, you know, uh, but not everybody will. And some people may, you have to watch their body. You can't say it's going to work with everybody. It'd be crazy. But it will sure. work with most people. And if you have difficult patients with, with depression and things like that, they may not, shouldn't even have to. Sometimes they just need other approaches until they're ready for the tuning fork. Or, right. You know, I want to make sure that they, I'm not against psychiatric drugs either if they're used correctly. They're overused, but when they're used, every, there's a place for everything. So, yeah. so therefore, I want to make those, sure those patients are stable, and then I would gradually maybe integrate in music therapy or perhaps the tuning forks if it's appropriate. Um, yes. But for the average person, just to do a normal tuning fork practice is no problem. Uh, but again, you and I are both trained in the healing arts, so we see people who are outside the average and that's what we'd like to do. Sure. You know, but at the same time, we, you can't you can't just say what we do could be mapped on to everybody. You know, you just you you're the training, you know, to put your hands on and do certain things. So and but you when you integrate the tuning forks into that, they add another dimension. That's what I'd like to say. Absolutely. Well, and what you're alluding to is kind of the art form of healing. Yeah. The, like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well the healing art and science, by the way. So yeah, right. Rooted inside. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's rooted in so it's an art. Uh, and, and, yep. and we clinicians know the difference between that and the people that do this to quantification and science because you can have all the, the lay people have a very misunderstanding of science. It doesn't prove anything. <laughs> it doesn't. All it does is give you ways of looking. And you got to read the study to figure out what are they saying, what's the pop, it goes on and on and on. But people want to say it proves it. Um, it, it, it Absolutely. It, it, I wish it did. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. 
So I'm just curious, can you share your personal view of, of the energy systems of the body? There's various cultures have, you know, talk about chakras or nadis, meridians, that these types of things. And these aren't things that are, that I know that are easily measurable per se, but you can kind of peek into that world a little bit. I'm just curious what your thoughts are and what your experience is. Well, I very much have studied these systems. I've, you know, I've studied uh, you know, a lot of acupuncture and oriental medicine. I've studied Ayurvedic medicine in India, naturopathic medicine in the West, and so on. And I think it's, I've come to the conclusion that these systems are, first, they're vibrationally based. They're based on a, on a much bigger concept than the body is separate from the mind. And secondly, the language of these systems is cultural. So you have to look at the behaviors they're talking about versus the words they're using. Uh, for example, we have in, in Ayurvedic medicine and West also ether, air, fire, water, earth. But in, in Chinese medicine, you have metal and wood. Uh, yes. And my interest there is what would be the behaviors of metal? What's the behaviors of wood? What, be, what In other words, what are the quantifiable behaviors that one can observe and talk about with somebody else? That's very different than saying, oh, well, I got the fire or something like that. I would say, mm-hmm. what, how do you know that you got the fire? What are the movement patterns? What does the skin look like? And so on. And so the physicians were trained in really, really good observation with their smell, with their touch, with their ears, and so on, to define what those words meant. And what we do is we try to we take them out of the cultural context and we make a mysticism out of them. And I've never really been for that. It gets too vague for me. I, I as much as I said about science, I have to. I am a scientist also. So, sure. you know, it's uh, and and I know the difference between if I'm going to work in someone, I want to be accountable. And if I say the word chakra, for example, I want to say to someone, these are the behaviors I'm observing. This is what it means to me. This is how I interpret it. And you could call it something else. And these are the biochemistry I think that might go with these behaviors and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I use it all. And by the way, my energy system I like is primarily ether, air, fire, water, earth. It comes out of alchemy and or and a little bit out of Ayurveda. Uh, it was I think developed by Dr. Randolph Stone. He's a polarity therapist, and I, I like that system only because it's inclusive and it integrates any other systems. Uh, and that's it. Yeah, I, I, I'm really familiar with the Ayurvedic system as well, and um, it's it's fascinating to see how some of these holistic systems of healing do truly integrate in the physical with the mental, with what I would label spiritual as well. And we've lost a little bit of that in Western medicine. I think we've really segregated things out quite a bit in some, in some ways really it's positive and helpful in other ways, maybe not so much. Absolutely. That's why I say you have to, everything has its, its goodness and it's not goodness. So it's uh... I mean, surgery, we got our surgeons are our surgery is unbelievable compared to some of these other cultures. But, uh, sure. you know, and, and our use of drugs or antibiotics and so on used correctly is amazing. So it's just a matter of being inclusive and being humble about my favorite is I don't understand why a doctor can't figure out that for 2000 years, other doctors have been around <laughs> and they look at them like they're stupid, you know, like uh, it's like. <laughs> it is the same thing as we go into another culture and we mess it up you know it's uh somehow it's in the it might be in the american psyche or i don't know what it is you go to europe though it's very different when i go to europe i worked at the rudolf steiner clinics and worked, oh wow yeah i worked right along medical doctors we call all ourselves we call ourselves biologic doctors and we all interrelate 
And they have a tradition going back a long way that we don't have in, in America. Many of these doctors were homeopaths, they're cyanoethrosophic doctors, but they're all trained medically, and naturopaths are, you know, they all merge. And so there's, and I, when I practiced there, I felt a relaxation about my practice I never felt in America, uh, mm. and a respect. And so you know, uh, we just don't have a strong tradition of, uh, that they would have in Europe or in India or China or places like that. Well, I'd like to take um, a quote from your book. I think it was Human Tuning. It says, uh, a, a fundamental principle in sound healing is that physical, emotional, and mental symptoms are being generated by an underlying energy field. Right. Thus, if we change the energy field, then the physical, emotional, and mental behavioral patterns will also change. Can you explain a little bit how, how we see this in action, like how, how this plays out? Well, if you, oh, well, my favorite is if you, if we go to, let's do body work for a moment. Uh, and, sure. you know, and one of the patterns is high, high shoulders, high hips, uh, rotated hips. And so, yeah, yeah, you can. So we lift our shoulders. And now a person walks around like that all day. Yeah. But, uh, they're going to see the world through that pattern. So therefore, if you just put hands on and the shoulders drop, the hips drop, the, the coccyx, the sacrum loosens up, the spine loosens up, they're going to see the world differently. Their mm-hmm. thing has changed. Uh, you could also do the same thing with the voice. If someone's going, you're all like this, and you tune them. A lot of times you, you do a little body work of tuning them. That, oh, hi, how are you? The, the voice drops, more resonant. And you have to assume that the moment that that happens, they have their experience in the world. They're not the same person. Right? Yeah. yeah. So you now are more open to different possibilities. But I give the example of changing the field and that if you live up here in the north and it's the middle of the winter and you go to Bahamas with all your coats and you're thinking in terms of winter thoughts, the moment you get into a different field that's nice and warm in the Caribbean and the ocean, all those thoughts go away. When I was at the ashram in the Bahamas, I was talking Shivananda Ashram. We went over to Club Atlantis. And I, oh, yeah. and I talked with the, this guy over there. He, and, I, and I went in this room, and it was filled with coats and stuff. I said, what are those? He said, people leave them here when they leave because they forget them. <laughs> <laughs> they had piles and piles of winter coats. <laughs> they wear them down and forget all about them. <laughs> So the field changes. Yeah. You know, and of course, yeah. you have to go all the time to Phoenix, Arizona for allergies, right? Because it changes the field. That's a great example. Yeah, absolutely. So when we feel out of balance, we would be, we would be good to... You know, there's that, that book that was, Physician Know Thyself. Oh, yes, I know that book. <laughs> and it's just, I just love, that's just a title that sums it up, right? It's just yeah. like, and so we all, as we get to know ourselves better then we can recognize when we are out of tune or out of alignment or holding on to tension that maybe we weren't able to recognize prior to that. I had a friend that, that uh, just got back from um, a long retreat, a meditation retreat. And one of his comments was, you know what? I had no idea how much tension and strain I was holding on to until I was in a place of no tension and no strain. And so we get so used to like living these lies of like, foot on the pedal, we're put on the gas and, and, and just go, go, go tense. And we have no idea. And I think this idea of reflecting back on ourselves and being able to cultivate these ability to feel and sense and tune into ourselves deeper so we can kind of observe that and then give ourselves feedback. Uh, it's maybe not easy, but do you have any suggestions on, on that? 
when I think of tension and the body, I think there's an ideal tension for coherence, right? It's, in other words, when you have no tension, it's not good. Like the, mm-hmm. in your strings and your guitar, for example. Right. You have a right tension, right, that makes music. So we have different tensions that we need to do different things. So I may be, I have to have more tension for one activity, less for another. I'm constantly going through different notes in a way in my life but they have to be tuned together in order to shift from one note to another. Mm. So the coherence is what that's about. And what's, and living requires that we, you know, life, life has changed. And uh, uh, stress science is how you adapt to change, basically. And if you can adapt to change, you need coherence. And when you have coherence, you know, you're, you're changing, changing, changing. Your coherence is like neutral in a car and everything else is like gears. You have a high pitch gear. You have a if you hear if you have an old car where you can shift gears, you, you can hear the sound higher and lower even. So for me, it's all about shifting and being able to shift with coherence being neutral and building that in. And there's no importance given to neutral. Mm, yeah, very little. Like how important is neutral? You see, but for me, if neutral is the essence of preventative medicine, and preventative medicine is that you can never know that what you never had. <laughs> Right. Yeah. He, he, so therefore, it's it's hard to prove, except for <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. you know, now I'm all for putting myself out of business. You see. <laughs> well, they, they used to have this model, I think, where you'd pay a physician to keep you well, yeah, and if you got sick, then you did not pay the physician. Exactly. Right? <laughs> That's a good system. <laughs> they don't work in America. So. <laughs> it doesn't work here. <laughs> <laughs> so you had mentioned earlier about consciousness and sound, and I've always been fascinated with this idea of consciousness. Um, this uh, quantum physicist, uh, Amika Swami, I believe, talks a lot about a consciousness as the foundation principle through which life emerges. And a lot of Western scientists think of consciousness as basically you have your brain and then consciousness secondary to the brain. You have consciousness because you have a brain. And I was, you mentioned consciousness earlier as a connection of uh, how we relate to, yes. to ideas, people, things. And I was wondering if you could expand on, on your idea of consciousness, especially as it relates to sound. It's just a fascinating topic that I think you have a, probably a good viewpoint on or well, interesting. Well, remember, sound is vibration. Okay. Right? And remember, quantum is vibration. It's just the quantification of vibration. We live in a universal vibrational field. And so before there was this ability to quantify certain things at a quantum level, the, there's something called the Nada Bindu Upanishad in India, where basically they just listen. They do deep listening. But when, you deep, when I listen to sound, what I come into is vibration. But once I, get, I stop quantifying it, I stop telling stories about it, that's, that's what's called qualia in the, in the, in the study of quali- qual- qualification. Uh, quantifying sound, I stop. It's like a teeter totter. You can quantify it, you can qualify it back and forth. But in the middle, at the fulcrum, is this vibration because vibration is everything. The moment you come into this vibrational state, the whole field becomes available to you. Everything becomes available. You aren't this, you aren't that, you're just vibration. And consciousness ultimately is our relationship to vibration. Now, you could say we relate uniquely to vibration through our human form. Or you could say we can only relate to the brain or whatever you want. But what's the brain? That's even more wacko, right? What's the brain? Is it the, is it the, the neurons in the brain? Is it, what about the heart? What about the colon? And, you know, it goes on and on and on. What about the biggest nerve? 
where does it begin? Where does the brain end? Where does anything vibrationally begin and end except we give it a quantification definition? Uh, you know, so consciousness to me is very, it's the ability to relate the vibration and how you relate to that vibration is going to be both quantitative and qualitative. And it's going to continue to tighter. Some people are more, be more quantitative about it, some more qualitative, they're going to find, and you can have power struggles between the two. And that's what we have now. We have Western science with all its quantitative stuff and this concept of um, evidence-based medicine, which I think is killing clinical work. It's like no child left behind in medicine, basically. And, you know, you want to quantify. It's no good unless you quantify. You've got to quantify it. And anything else is useless. And so, and you have 2,000 years of uselessness as far as they're concerned or whatever. So to me, it's, it's very simple. It's a vibrational universe. The moment we don't know how we do it, but we relate to vibration and in our relationship with vibration, we quantify it and we, and we, and we it's quantitative and qualitative. That's it. And speak to, that's beautiful. And can you speak to that from the perspective, your perspective as a musician? So as a musician, allowing this, this vibrational field to move through you with whatever instrument you're using, can you speak to that a little yeah. bit? Only that when you, as a musician, you know, I work with a lot of really good musicians. And I can say what I'm more interested in is, and they're all interested, you know it, because they're listening to the silence between the sounds, right? They're not even involved in the sound that much. They're listening so deeply, right, that what's left is this vibration, a vibrational field, without right, without wrong, without good, without bad, without mistakes. None of that exists. You know, and you go and they, and you go into this field together, and you're relating at this unbelievably beautiful place. I call that a sound journey with people. So mm. I've gone out of my way to teach non-musicians how to do it. Right? This, mm. So I, I go from the word music to the word sound. Like for instance, I've taken, I took one of my panels apart as a, and just made a lyre that's upright, and I have and anybody, and people come in and they start making sounds on it. And as long as you don't try to make music and just get into the sound, it's amazing. Mm. So music requires, it's like to be a musician, we think requires certain training, right? But to be, to go into sound and listen doesn't. <laughs> uh, so I like the word sound healing a lot because I could teach everybody how to listen, appreciate, and play sound without having to make it fit a musical genre. Absolutely. Beautiful. And it's one of the reasons I love of mantra as well. It's empowering. You can use your own voice. You can open up and relating to various vibrations through your own instrument, the tool of your own body and vocal cords. It's the best instrument in the world, by the way. It's tuning forks are secondary to your voice. And, and mantras are even better in that you can just think the sound, right? So mm. you, know, you, can, you can chant it out loud. You can think it. Because that, when you're humming, when you're, it's vibrating your body from inside out. So it's, you know, the tuning forks are from outside in, but we right. people hum the sound oftentimes, so they ingrain it with their voice as well. Yes. I have um, two children that are, uh, one is 12 and one is seven. And I think a lot about how to promote this idea of, of sound and music to support their lives and connect with them. And if you had to give some thoughts on helping children reconnect with the wonder you were talking about earlier. How, how can we as parents or as school systems uh, think or educators start to help our, our young ones? And it really could be any age connect to that sense of wonder, but I'm specifically thinking about our children. Well, just so you know, I also have 
I have twin boys. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're they're twenty four now, and I also have an older son who's fifty, <laughs> and a granddaughter who's twenty twenty four also. <laughs> wow! So, you know, and my specialty was uh, child and adolescent psychology, basically. And to me, the the op- the operative word there is play. Mm-hmm. You make it playful for them. I used to go into the school system, have people act out the elements, tap tuning forks, and so on, jump around the room, you know, and and and, ha- and play. Uh, and children have that sense as long as adults get out of the way. Uh, yeah. And I think sometimes we, I was lucky. I said early on that my aunt made sure I didn't quantify my music with notes and bar lines and things like that. She, and I think we're too quick to put too much emphasis on quantification uh, with children. Uh, yes. And, you know, it, because with somehow the te- like the teeter totters out of balance there and they're not quite ready for it. And we push it on them. So with my children, I just played the sound. They all tapped the tuning forks. They all jumped around. I gave them sessions with the tuning forks. I still do. And they're 25. Now. <laughs> yeah, they're 20, they turn 25. <laughs> so, but they have this in them. I built it into them. It's not, you know, when they're teenagers, no matter what you do, probably ain't going to work. But <laughs> so don't, don't, if anybody listening to this has teenagers, don't think it's going to help. <laughs> but if anything you do before they're a teenager, it's going to be good. Exactly. But like, actually, when they get over being teenagers, things change. So don't worry. <laughs> when when I got back from the work a workshop with you, and I I had a C and a G tuning fork, and I shared it with uh, with my kids, and they they both really enjoyed it. They they touched them together, listened with their ears, closed their eyes, and that was their form of meditation. And uh, even for like three or four minutes, it was just really lovely to to yeah. watch. And you know the way of just watching feel the energy, they just naturally do it, just like I naturally at three years old play the piano and the travel. You know, it's uh. Uh, and we have to, and don't worry about they're going to. They haven't quantified the world yet. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now, I also uh, really loved in your book how you described life and learning as a school, as a musical school, and resolving our personal challenges uh, where ev- everyone's enrolled in this school. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful perspective of talking about in this school. We learn about dissonance and resonance, whether we like it or not. Right. Yes, thank you for sharing that. Can you talk a little bit about that more? That's, Just what, we're talking, that's what we're talking about. It's about. I used the word music school there, but it's a vibrational school. Yeah. And we're learning. We Everything's frequency, and every time we learn something and integrate the frequency, we've learned it forever. Uh, we have that frequency available to us. And so, and I think there's the consciousness is constantly expanding, and there's more and more to learn. It's infinite, as far as I'm concerned. I Again, how, I, how I'm going to relate to the world when I don't have my body, I have no idea. <laughs> so, but, but I'm sure that I will. You know, that, you know, and so right now, I, this, that's what the school teaches us. It teaches us that when, you know, I, I did a lot of work with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and people like that. And I, and I learned that when people were passing, I was there for many passings. And you could just feel the, the vibration, the energy as the passing happens. It's a, it's a lesson. And it gives you confidence. And I like to say that you can't let go of a frequency now and enter and you're not what's going to happen when you die. I mean, it's all about, you know, letting go of frequencies, you know, and, and, and entertaining larger frequencies and giving yourself to them. And that's that's my understanding of the music school. There's uh, with things we like. Sometimes the things we think we get rid of, the things we like, too. You know, this, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a vibration. It's not about 
good and bad. It's about vibration. Yes, I, I think it's 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 really beautiful. And you also mentioned we need to be reminded that dissonance is a natural state, and dissonance is beautiful, like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Yes, absolutely. That's order out of chaos. Order out of chaos. Yeah, I, and, and dissonance is my friend. And if, if it's not my friend, if I don't know how to get back to coherence, so you see, that's the that's the problem. Uh, it's such a an incredible way of thinking about it, and because obviously, if you don't know how to get back to to some balance or harmony, you will be in a state of fight or flight because you're you're nervous, you're worried, you're fighting the dissonance constantly, and you're trying to get out of it. So then you start drinking or smoking something or whatever it may be, taking a drug, anything, anything to relieve it. But these practices that we're talking about are how to prevent and relieve it more in, in balance, so to speak. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, like I used to, a lot of my patients, you know, they, they worked on Wall Street when I was in New York. Their, their, they, their day, way of relieving distress was to go to the bar after work and drink. Mm-hmm. And, and I would give, they, they finally come to me for sessions. They say, this is better than the bar and drinking. That's what they described. <laughs> <laughs> That's a compliment for you. That's <laughs> I mean, how they would say. <laughs> go, Whoa, you know, I guess. <laughs> but it's all they had to compare it with. Yes. They, you know, yeah. You know, and they thought, you know, they thought meditation stuff was bullshit, and uh, and, and and but then they basically would come for other reasons, and I would treat them, and 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 do these other practices within the treatment, and they would get the results, and I wouldn't, I've never called it meditation for them, I just call it a session. <laughs> sure. Yeah. We've we've talked a lot about moving from dissonance to harmony, or from from stress or fight or flight into, into more of a cohesive state. What is the potential for someone who is, let's say, already mostly in, you know, doing their practice and maintaining a really a, a ritual or their morning practice and living a good lifestyle and they're feeling in tune and in harmony already? We don't know what we don't know. So what is the potential for the human beings? What if we kind of get out of this idea of like, okay, let me get out of pain and more into where more of a state of balance. What is the next, what is the potential for us as, as we move forward that we're maybe next step to tap into? You know, I don't know, actually. I mean, basically I, I, I'm from Indiana, you know, I just take, I'm a corn boy. (laughs) I grew up in the Midwest and I just take things that are in front of me and I deal with them. Um, Yeah. I don't have, it's not like I don't understand you can get high, you can have unbelievable spiritual experiences, you can have unbelievable downs. It's like we live in a bipolar world, that's the teeter-totter. Um, right. But I just don't get caught up in that, per se. I, yep. When I was younger, I might have. It, it's even when I play golf, for example, I'm, I, I don't get caught up in the highs and lows of the game. I appreciate more my ability to move in and out of the highs and lows and appreciate them without getting mm. caught in them. And that, to me, is the essence of what you want. And now, because it's guaranteed, there's no way that anybody's going to find the form of your life isn't going to get messed up. (laughs) And therefore it's, it's, it's not about, it's being aware of coherence in a way that it gives you perspective, how to deal with it. You know, uh, you'll pick out better what fits for what you need. And then that's why we need therapists. That's why we need people to help us to teach us, to guide us into ways that we can work with ourselves and figure things out. But if you have a practice, that teaching becomes more uh, integrated, faster, you know, because there's no magic. I like that. Just sessions, 
are magic. You don't go to therapists for magic. You go to therapists to get input, and then if you have a practice, it's but you're gonna you have to own it. You can't just walk away from it. But I'm all for what I call patch up sessions and things like that. Uh, yes, I, I think it's. In fact, I, I like to say it's necessary for us to do our work and make money because <laughs> somebody, <laughs> you have to have your bag of tricks, right, for people to come. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, when the, but when those are integrated correctly with the, with the bigger picture, it's much more exciting, both for you as a practitioner and for the person seeing you. No question. It's empowering. It's empowering. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you, you use your bag of tricks to come back over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not, I never want that empowering. We don't need any more codependency in this world. I don't no, think. You know. don't. <laughs> There's no lack of people that could use sessions. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I'm, I'm never worried about that either. <laughs> in the beginning, when you're building your practice, it may look like there's not enough people, but there comes a point when there's too many people. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> so, John, as as we're kind of coming to our, our rounding out our session here, is there any any closing thoughts or words in terms of uh, where where you're at right now and things that are important to you that you may want to share before, um, yeah. before we depart? I think you know. You know, first I want to say it's a pleasure speaking with you. I remember now speaking at the university too. <laughs> And oh, yeah. it's more for me that I can share with practitioners, too. Uh, yeah. I know you see people every day, you know, much, even though I don't really have a practice. I've seen thousands and thousands of people over 50 years. And what makes the difference to me is people, everybody getting better you know, and learning and developing. That's my dedication. I'm not a politician. I don't, you know, I, I just, I'm dedicated to the healing arts. And yes. sound and music, I've always wanted to bring that into the healing arts as something to integrate and learn from. And that's my work. That's what I do. That's my calling. And as part of my journey, I've learned lots of body work. I've I've been eclectic in what I've done. Uh, But that's my nature. And everybody has to then integrate as they want. Because when you become coherent, you get in touch with your nature, right? And what's, what's the right way for you to do things. And then the problem that I see with people is they, they think there's the ultimate right way, but there's only, you're coherent and you make a mistake and you learn from it. You're coherent, you make a mistake and you learn from it. And you dedicate yourself to that what you know you have to do. And when you speak about it and you actually put your word on it, that, that can hurt more than ever when somebody says they don't believe you. you know, so, but that's the kind of hurt that is the best hurt in the world. And when you learn how to deal with it correctly, it's just the vibration and you have that frequency and nothing can stop you you because know, there's no fear. So. And in, and in my life, that's basically what I do. I just switched now from seeing, from working with 50, 60, 100 people at a time. Uh, when COVID came, I just spent two months doing nothing but rearranging my studio to reach people in another way. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> it messed up. It's a, it, but that's what you do. You know, I didn't want to do it at first. I said, this is ridiculous. What do I want to learn Zoom platform? What do I learn eCamp? What do I care about? Like, it goes on and on and on. But I did it. Even while I was doing it, I was thinking all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Even John Bulow went through some dissonance, huh? Exactly. You better believe it. But I still, but at the same time, I went through it in a way that it wasn't going to give me a heart attack, you know, kill that kind of thing. And I looked upon it as order out of chaos. And, yeah. and, it, and it turned out that COVID's been one of the greatest gifts I can ever imagine. 
Uh, I mean, I'm reaching more people than ever. The business is better than ever. My life is, I'm not on airplanes all the time. I mean, basically COVID has been a gift to me. So beautiful. that's that's where my life has led me now. Although I certainly went through grief about certain things I can't do anymore, but I have a good relationship with grief. You see, everything's about what's my relationship with it. Right. I told my story, I'm a bad person because I can't do this. I, I grieve. I can't ever have this back. What's wrong? I could go off that direction, but I tended to say to be with that and say also, where am I at? What do I need to do to manifest this? My coherence comes. I, I put things together. I put my studio together in at least 40 different ways to figure out how to do it best. Right. Yeah, beautiful. Well, you are an incredible teacher, and I really appreciate uh, all that you're sharing from your heart and all your years of of wisdom and, and clinical work and uh, shining through. and And thank you for taking the time to to meet with us and um, share with the audience. And I was also hoping you could uh, share where where individuals can can connect with you on uh, maybe some books or your website or how to get some tuning forks. What's well, the best way? Well, well, always the best way is just my, tuning, my website is biosonics.com. Uh, and my books, you can just look up my name. You'll find my books on Kindle. Uh, I've written a number of books. If you're a scientist, I have research published, peer-reviewed research published. You can just look it up on PubMed, I'm sure, under my name. And so that's basically it's. If you just type my name in, you'll a lot will you will find me. <laughs> you know, I'm on Facebook. I have lots of Facebook. <laughs> it's very easy to find me now. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks again, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on Sound Medicine Mantras and Music. If you are enjoying the podcasts, click subscribe. To access other episodes, more interviews, and music, please visit our website at www.mantrasandmusic.com. That's www.mantrasandmusic.com. Join us next Thursday for the release of our newest episode. Thanks again for your support. See you next week. are interested in all the benefits of performing your own 40-day mantra discipline, then be sure to visit the podcast webpage at mantrasandmusic.com and sign up for Geo's premier online training course titled Ultimate Chance Mantra Meditation Course, offering valuable guidance for anyone wanting to increase abundance, enhance health, overcome obstacles, reduce stress, gain clarity, and advance personal goals. You will be guided step-by-step by by Geo to complete a 40-day powerful practice of mantra in a clear, fun, and easy-to-follow program.